Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 30th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal affirmed a WCAB finding of a stroke injury. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of American Medical Response versus WCAB and Ronald Westerman. Ronald Westerman was employed as a paramedic by American Medical Response. His job was stressful and he worked long hours, including shifts of up to 36 hours. His tasks included lifting heavy weights, such as medical equipment and patients. He testified that he was sedentary for long periods of time. His treating physician reported that Westerman had gained approximately 70 pounds in the two years before the stroke. Westerman's stroke occurred in 2009 after he had returned home following a 36-hour shift. He was 50 years old at the time. He suffered an acute loss of consciousness and was taken to Antelope Valley Hospital, where he underwent emergency brain surgery. He remained hospitalized for over two months. He has not returned to work and requires home care assistance. Westerman began treating with Arthur E. Lipper, M.D. in the fall of 2009. Dr. Lipper began, became his primary treating physician. He concluded that Westerman's stroke had an industrial component. The employer objected to Dr. Lipper's report accordingly, and the matter was submitted to the panel qualified medical examiner, Paul J. Grodin, M.D., Dr. Grodin theorized that the stroke was caused by a blood clot that traveled through a hole in the heart to the brain. The theory was that Westerman's work required that he sit for long periods of time, which would predispose him to in situ thrombosis in his lower extremities or even pelvis. That is, a blood clot would form in the lower extremities or pelvis, travel to the heart, and due to the hole in the heart, arrive in the brain. But Dr. Grodin's conclusion was conditional. It depended upon the existence of a hole in the heart that can be documented by a shunt study with an echocardiogram. If he did not have this hole, the QME said it would be a non-industrial event. At his deposition, however, the QME concluded that it was reasonably medically probable that his theory was correct even without the diagnostic procedure. The work comp judge found that the stroke was industrially caused and that Westerman was totally disabled. The employer's petition for reconsideration contended that Dr. Grodin's opinion and conclusion were not substantial evidence without the diagnostic test. The employer claimed in the petition for reconsideration that applicant's refusal to undergo the diagnostic test recommended by PQME Dr. Grodin has unreasonably shifted the burden of proof on the defendants to disprove an industrial injury. However, reconsideration was denied. The Court of Appeal affirmed the award in the unpublished opinion of American Medical Response versus WCAB and Ronald Westerman. The opinion noted that there was no evidence in the record that Westerman refused to submit to the diagnostic test or even that the employer requested that he do so. Although during oral argument, the employer's counsel stated that a demand to take the diagnostic test was made in a letter, no such letter is contained in the record. In the absence of this diagnostic test, the opinion of the QME was substantial evidence, 
as it was based upon reasonable medical probability. A WCAB panel decision struck down an Almarez rating based upon grip strength. Here's what happened in the case of Gurdev Malhotra versus the State of California Department of Developmental Services. An FNA found that Malhotra sustained 20% permanent disability as a result of an injury to his right small finger. The employer petitioned for reconsideration contending that the rating was incorrectly based on applicants' loss of grip strength. The claim that the AMA guides require such a rating to be based upon loss of range of motion in the absence of a basis to apply an exception. The rating was based upon an evaluation by Dr. John Colias at QME. Dr. Colias noted applicants' loss of motion and loss of sensation in the tip of the right fifth finger, as well as decreased grip strength. This resulted in an impairment rating of 2% whole person impairment using applicants' decreased range of motion and altered sensation under the AMA guides. Applicant's attorney asked Dr. Colias whether he believed it would be more equitable to rate for loss of grip strength. Dr. Colias stated in a supplemental report that decreased grip strength cannot be rated according to the AMA guidelines. In response to a further query from applicant's attorney, Dr. Colias agreed that applicant exerted an honest effort while using and gripping the dynamometer. The work comp judge awarded a permanent disability rating of 20% based upon her instructions to rate for loss of grip strength. The disability evaluator testified on cross-examination that his rating was simply based on the rating instructions given and that he would not use a grip loss rating for a laceration and numbness of a finger. The employer petitioned for reconsideration. The WCAB reversed the award. The AMA guides in Section 16.8 states that in a rare case, if the examiner believes the individual's loss of strength represents an impairment factor that has not been considered adequately by other methods in the guides, the loss of strength may be rated separately. The work comp judge in explaining her decision only noted that Dr. Colias does not appear to be aware of the latitude he has. In response, the WCAB said that the work comp judge is usurping the role of the physician in determining that applicant's impairment should be based upon grip loss rather than the factors he identified that comport with the AMA guides. Dr. Colias responded in the affirmative to applicant's attorney's query, does the grip loss indicate in your report reflect an honest effort by the applicant? However, Dr. Colias chose not to rate applicants' grip loss fully cognizant of the limitations on impairment ratings in Section 16.8a of the guides. The fact that he recognized that applicant gave an honest effort in his grip testing does not necessarily establish the factors in Section 16.8a for use of such measurements as an alternative basis for rating applicants' impairment. In the absence of a physician's whole person impairment rating based on grip loss measurements, it is beyond the work comp judge's authority to interpose this rating method. A lien claim hearing rep loses another round at the WCAB. Last September, the appeals board sitting on Bonk 
issued a notice that a hearing was scheduled to, to determine if it will suspend or remove hearing representative Daniel Escamilla's privilege to appear before the appeals board. The allegations claim that Escamilla has been repeatedly sanctioned for engaging in bad faith actions or tactics that are frivolous or solely intended to cause unnecessary delay. The reasons for those sanctions included Escamilla's willful failures to comply with statutory and regulatory obligations, disruption and delay of proceedings for an improper motive, and presenting arguments that were indisputably without merit. Daniel Escamilla in propria persona filed two new petitions in his case and lost both of them. The first was a petition for an order requiring the board to produce all case documents related to sanctioned proceedings in 11 cases. The second was an objection to the order requiring him to submit an offer of proof and a petition for removal to obtain a ruling on a petition to produce and to obtain clarification of specific issues to be determined by the board. The WCAB denied both petitions in an unbanked opinion and order. The case is set for a conference on April 25th and for a trial on June 5th and 6th, 2012. And now our fraud report. A spinal implant provider is facing fraud charges. Trudy Maurer and her company Implantium are accused of drastically overbilling Santa Clara County for the cost of spinal implants for governmental employees. Though prosecutors say this type of fraud may be somewhat common, it's believed to be one of the first criminal cases of its kind in the state because investigations into the activity are so painstaking and the practice often flies under the radar. Maurer also is CEO of the Spine Network of California, which operates out of the same office as Implantium and promotes itself as a service to connect patients with spine surgeons and help patients clear their insurance requirements. If convicted, the San Francisco residents could face up to 13 years in prison and up to $450,000 in fines plus restitution. Prosecutors said Implantium works as the billing company for spinal surgeries, buying implant devices from manufacturers and supplying them to hospitals without actually ever handling the products. The hospitals implant the devices into the backs of injured workers and Implantium recovers its cost of the product by billing the patient's work comp insurance carriers. By law, companies like Implantium are allowed to profit up to $250 per device. But Marer is accused of altering invoices for the implants by as much as tens of thousands of dollars, allowing her to receive compensation from the insurance carriers that went way beyond what they paid for the device. In this case, the invoices dating back to 2008 were sent to the County of Santa Clara and the City of San Jose, which are self-insured for work comp. The District Attorney's Office is working with prosecutors in Los Angeles, San Diego, and Sonoma counties, where the defendants are suspected of defrauding two large private insurance companies. More roofing contractors have been arrested for fraud. John and Camille Applegate the owners of Hallmark Roofing have each been arrested on 24 felony counts for workers' compensation insurance premium fraud and five felony counts each for failure to report employee wages. 
If convicted, both could face up to five years in state prison and restitution, which could exceed $1 million. According to investigators, the Applegates failed to accurately report their employee wages to the state compensation insurance fund. A forensic audit, audit of their records showed they failed to report the business's employee wages accurately and avoided paying almost $630,000 in workers' compensation premiums. The investigation also revealed that the Hallmark Roofing owners also failed to report their employee wages to the Employment Development Department. This case is being prosecuted by the San Mateo County District Attorney's Office. A Mountain View painting company owner has been charged with felony workers' compensation insurance premium fraud. Bill Wan Yi has been accused of stealing $200,000 from the workers' compensation insurance carrier. Prosecutors claim that Yi misrepresented his Mountain View company's safety record and grossly underreported its payroll by hiring unlicensed contractors and paying some employees' wages in cash. This results in inaccurate payroll figures being reported to the insurance company, who then lowers its premiums. If convicted of the charge, Yi faces up to five years in jail and ordered to pay full restitution. And in regulatory news, a bill pending in Congress could help resolve Medicare secondary payer system problems that hinder settling workers' compensation and liability claims. H.R. 1063, the Strengthening Medicare and Repaying Taxpayers Act, or SMART, aims to simplify the Medicare reimbursement process under the Medicare secondary payer law. Beneficiaries who receive Medicare-funded medical services or are likely to receive them in the future are expected to set aside settlement money to repair the Medicare Trust Fund. The SMART Act was referred to the House Energy and Commerce Committee last year. U.S. Representative Tim Murphy, who introduced the bill in March 2011, spoke to a group of insurance professionals recently about his proposal. He said litigants often are reluctant to settle lawsuits because it is unclear how much of the award should be set aside for Medicare reimbursements. He claims it is important to simplify Medicare secondary payer compliance so plaintiffs can receive settlement benefits as soon as possible. The SMART Act would require litigation parties to request a final bill from the CMS which would detail how much money a beneficiary would need to pay his Medicare out of his or her settlement. CMS generally would be required to provide that statement within a 65-day window, allowing parties to pay the amount immediately and close the beneficiary's liability or work comp claim. The bill has received support from various interest groups, including business and trial lawyers, who want to promote litigation settlements while ensuring that the Medicare Trust Fund maintains the funding it needs. And in financial news, the healthcare industry self-insurance program of California, now under management by Self-Insured Solutions of Ontario, is moving forward with a plan designed to secure the long-term solvency. The SIG is contracting its former members, contacting its former members with an offer including a significant financial incentive to encourage them to rejoin the group. The group's membership has been reduced over the past couple of years. Officials think 
that the primary cause of this reduction was bad publicity in 2009 and 2010, which caused some members to leave the group. Rebuilding the group membership is one key to ensuring long-term solvency. Management is contacting its current and former members concerning options they have for participating in the process of helping the group to meet its financial responsibilities. The California State Office of Self-Insurance Plans recently released a notice that reminds members, including former members, of their responsibilities for shortfalls incurred by the group. The self-insured group currently has an actuarial deficit. Former members can rejoin the group and pay their share of the actuarially-based liabilities on an installment basis over several years, or they can purchase insurance elsewhere and cut the group a check right now. Part of the reason the group has a shortfall is that self-insured groups have a higher standard of solvency than traditional insurance carriers. California law is the most conservative in the country and requires SIGs to maintain a deposit with the state's Office of Self-Insurance Plans equal to 135% of its estimated future liability. These higher standards can be a source of added strength to the self-insured group industry. However, they also require that a given group's members must cooperate in ensuring that these standards are met. A new study published by Conning Research and Consulting says that future workers' compensation profitability is a bumpy road. The workers' compensation line of insurance saw its last year of underwriting profit in 2006. Experts say the economic recovery and rate increases will boost premium, but rising medical costs and increased utilization of drugs will reintroduce the specter of inflation in lost costs and reduce profitability, profitability even further. Profits have been particularly affected by falling investment yields, creating headwinds against overall profit gains. Still, some early signs of a turn in key economic drivers may be appearing, and the effects of recovery may bring some new surprises in risks and opportunities in the line. Insurers face many challenges in the recovery, from the recession, and these challenges are likely to vary by state and industry focus, among other factors. Future profitability will depend on how well the insurers can adapt to these changes and manage both the assets and liabilities on their balance sheets. State governments and insurance departments also will need to lead the way, using lessons learned from successful state reforms in the past as the work comp industry resets for the future. The State Compensation Insurance Fund has canceled plans to lay off some 1,500 workers. The fund announced last fall that it needed to cut jobs in response to shrinking business and a need to cut $350 million in costs. Through negotiations with the workers' union, employees were offered a buyout. Nearly 1,000 employees took state fund up on the offer and left at the end of last year. Since then, an Another nearly 300 workers took jobs at other state agencies or in the private sector or retired. That leaves state fund to figure out what to do with only 200 workers who are left. To avoid state-allowed bumping rights based on seniority, the state fund is canceling the layoffs. 
Instead, in the next few weeks, the insurer will look at vacancies and find slots for the remaining workers. An email memo from Tom Rowe, the state fund president and CEO, said that this has been a difficult but necessary process for the state fund. And with that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.